0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the State of the Union address was like a game show for Donald Trump. Lots of giveaways. The Federal Court of Appeal has cleared a hurdle of the The Federal Court of Appeal has cleared a hurdle for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. What now? And the coronavirus has lots of collateral damage, including sport... The Tokyo Olympic Committee is concerned. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the State of the Union address last night. I'm not sure how many watched it. I certainly did. But, you know, that's just the sort of news head junkie I am. I'm going to play you a couple of clips here. The first one, uh, Trump talking about uh, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, talking about socialists as he defends the American health care system.
1: 132 lawmakers in this room have endorsed legislation to impose a socialist takeover of our health care system, wiping out the private health insurance plans of 180 million very happy Americans. To those watching at home tonight, I want you to know, we will never let socialism destroy American health care.
0: Uh, everything from healthcare to going to Mars.
1: Now we must embrace the next frontier, America's manifest destiny in the stars. I am asking Congress to fully fund the Artemis program to ensure that the next man and the first woman on the moon will be American astronauts using this as a launching pad to ensure that America is the first nation to plant its flag on Mars.
0: And oh, yeah, there was lots of applause. Pretty much every 10 to 20 seconds, give or take the issue. All right, let's bring, all right, please stop, enough. Uh, Christopher Devine, let's bring him in, assistant professor, University of Dayton, and with us now. Christopher, thank you for the time, much appreciated.
2: Yeah, my pleasure to join you, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's kind of a slow news day, though. (laughs) Oh,
0: man, it never (laughs) stops. And, you know, if it's not (laughs) happening down there, it's happening up here, man. We got our own crap, too. Uh, Anyway, your thoughts on on, uh, the speech last night? Um, You know, uh, trying to be as neutral as I can in all of this. I thought it was one of his better presentations. What are your thoughts on all of this?
2: I would agree with that. You know, um, President Trump was urged uh, by many Republicans before this, stay away from impeachment. Uh, Stay away from kind of mocking Democrats for the the Iowa debacle. Uh, Focus on your record. uh, Portray it in the best light and try to uh, start the reelection campaign. I think he did that. I think he stuck to the script. And whatever you think of the policies he was endorsing, uh, just as a matter of working with what he has in terms of his policies and his record, I think he did a very effective job of it. I think it's one of his better speeches.
0: He didn't seem to stray too much from the script, did he?
2: That's right. Um, He he seemed to... uh, you know, be, be pretty disciplined, um, you know, not, not do too much ad-libbing. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, there were other things that were uh, not in the speech that, that you know, attracted attention. Of course, we have Nancy Pelosi ripping up the speech at the end, uh, but even President Trump not shaking her hand at the beginning.
0: Let's talk about that right away. Let's talk yeah. about that and how people are are, are, are uh, how that's resonating with Americans. Uh, obviously uh, the president comes in, lots of pomp and circumstance, hands the speech uh, to the speaker, Nancy Pelosi. She reaches out her hand to shake his hand. He just turns around. Pretty obvious that he snubbed her. Uh, that's bad enough and then at the end uh, as he's signing off she's picks up the speech and, and rips it literally every page in half. Um, your thoughts on all of this?
2: Yeah, there's all kinds of subtle things ha- happening. So, um, <clears throat> you know, for one thing, when she introduced him, uh, I believe they're supposed to say, or traditionally the speaker will say something right. like, it's my high honor and distinct pleasure or something along those lines to introduce the President of the United States. She skipped that part and just said, the President of the United States. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and even during the speech, she's uh, not really paying attention to him, mostly. She's looking down at the speech at, itself. Um who knows if riffing up the speech was a response to him not shaking her hand. Uh, I do have to say in talking about this, it feels like high school drama to be <laughs> talking Man. about it. But I think it does matter in terms of, of, of civility uh, in U.S. politics. And in many uh, countries around the world, you know, we're, we're getting you know, more divisive politics and sort of the breaking down of, uh, of some norms of behavior. Um, you had, by the way, some members of Congress, Democratic members like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, refusing to attend the speech. Um, just like you had some Democratic members um, like John Lewis who refused to attend the um, uh, inauguration a few years ago. So, you know, it's just part of a continuing series of, 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 um, uh, of, you know, displays of of, of a divided political system. Uh, I think it's really unfortunate as far as who's to blame for what happened last night. I think Trump probably did blow off the handshake from Nancy Pelosi. I think that's just traditional to I mean, look how many hands was he shaking last night, pretty much everyone he, he came yeah, in contact with. Yeah. He sees Pence avoid shaking his hands, so I don't know, maybe he wasn't doing that. But then again, um, maybe he didn't shake Pence's hand so he could make it less obvious that he was avoiding Pelosi. I don't know, but it's, it's not a good... What do you
0: think lie. would have happened if he just snubbed the handshake and she never bothered to rip up the speech at the end? Would we be talking about yeah, this? You know, the-
2: that's a great point to bring up. I think that's right. To be honest, I think she uh, miscalculated in doing that, uh, because um, to whatever extent there, there was a focus on aspects outside of the speech, it probably would have been on the non-handshake. And by ripping it up instead, um, that's you know a minor part of the story, and it's really more about uh, her action. Um, so... You know, I'm sure other people have other opinions. My personal take is that that was a miscalculation on, on Speaker Pelosi. And it's part.
0: not as if she didn't have lots of time to think about it. Well, he was, you right. know, talking right. for ninety minutes or so. I mean, I wonder if she thought of this right away, or if just at the right. end she had yeah, had there's, enough there's and no, decided no. to tear it up.
2: And I mean, in her defense, that's a pretty, you know, if he was snubbing her with the handshake, and yeah. again, I, you, you can't tell for sure. No, I, I, yeah, I, pretty, I would, I would blow I would, right, right there. So yeah, I would say you know, that the people. the
0: fault lies on both of them. There, I, I don't yeah. think anyone did yeah. anyone any favors there. And, you know, when you look back to uh, filibusters in, in the old days and uh, prior to Trump's election and, and reading Green Eggs and Ham, I think Americans just got tired of this stuff. And I'm not sure it helps either side when they see these two bickering this way.
2: Right. Well, you know, but we, we can be so selective in our interpretation
3: of, of, uh, of,
2: you know, who's at fault in some of these. So, yeah, so, yeah you know, strong Democrats or strong Republicans will put the blame more on, on uh, one of the other uh, uh, for,
0: for, for this. So,
2: um, yeah, It certainly I mean, does dis-
0: it's, to- It certainly does display the tension between the two. Yeah,
2: right, right. And as far as people rejecting it, uh, people will say that they reject it, um, just like many things in politics where people say, oh, I'm sick of the parties and, you know, I want a third party or other things like that. And then what's their behavior in, in, in following up? You know, most of them are going to end up voting for someone who does this type of stuff whether it's Donald Trump or whether it's a, a Democratic nominee depending on on, on who it is
3: mm. um,
2: so people will say they're 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 fed up but um, I don't see them really clamoring to to uh, elect um, or even at this point nominate someone who does put an emphasis on civility look that was the the, the focus of, of Cory Booker's campaign uh, for instance what was trying to raise the the um, uh, kind of standard of discourse in the country and he never went anywhere uh joe biden's trying to do that that's one of his themes is restoring civility although you know he has his uh you know kind of checkered past on on some of those things um but you know he's not doing well i don't know we'll see but but he didn't do that well in iowa let's say from what you can tell so far so you know let's see people actually step up and try to nominate and elect people who really focus on on civility and then i'll believe that they're that bothered by it
0: how do you compare this state of the union to others in the past I I was listening to one commentator uh, on one of the U.S. networks, and they said, well, he came with lots of giveaways.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that analogy to a a game show. I think that's pretty good. The only thing he didn't do is give away a car. Exactly. Uh,
0: And I thought, you know, the scholarship and the medal to Rush Limbaugh and then the the soldier coming in with his family, my goodness. I mean, there was was tears. Uh, So, boy, he had it loaded for bear. Yeah.
2: um, You know, it's... um, it's been the tradition since Ronald Reagan to have those special guests there. Yep. Um, by the way, Juan Guaido, uh, the, the president, you know, kind of the president yeah. of Venezuela, was there, too. It's easy to forget about him. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of folks there and, and, you know, really covered a wide range. We had the Tuskegee Airman, who's 100 years old, and his grandson wants to be in the space.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, There's
2: a lot going on there. So, anyway, we, we've we seen that, you know— Whatever you want to call it, you know, gimmick or honor or something. Since Ronald Reagan, it makes for good television. It really does. Yeah. Um, it is unifying in its way for all the divisive aspects of the State of the Union. I mean, it's nice to see um, honoring the Tuskegee Airmen and so on, uh, or, the, or the father uh, yeah. surprising his his, uh, his children and yep. his wife um, uh, coming back, or, or honoring the uh, the family of the uh, soldier who was yeah. uh, uh, slain as a result of, of uh, uh, Soleimani's actions. And so it, it's you know. You could dismiss it as, as a, a game show kind of thing, and to be honest, in ways it was, just kind of giving things away. As you said, there's a lot going at on. The same time, yeah, a lot going on.
0: Um, uh, Will, uh, what happens now? You think impeachment, uh, everything that's happened in the last several weeks, several months, what have you, and then this happens, obviously, uh, the day after uh, the Democrats have some issues in Iowa with with the caucus and such going on there. Uh, The momentum clearly seems to be in the president's favor at this point. Is that accurate?
2: I think so. Uh, you know, I, I, I'd start from the premise that whenever the economy is in, in relatively good shape, um, you should bet that the incumbent is is, is going to do well. Th- that's not always going to hold. Other things could, could get in the way. Al Gore did not uh, get elected in 2000, for instance, with a good economy. So there's no guarantees here. Um, he was not an incumbent, but you know, incumbent party. Um, so, you know, I, I think President Trump, uh, you're seeing some some pickup in, in his polling numbers. They're, they're hardly uh, uh, you know, great polling numbers, but, um, but they're getting better and, and they're not so different from president Obama in 2012 running for re-election. So, um, you know, I, I think president Trump is looking relatively good here, uh, but we don't know who the democratic nominee is going to be. We don't know how united or divided the party is going to be going into it. Uh, we'll see what happens with the economy. Um, uh, you know, uh, national security and foreign affairs, it, a lot could change, but. Um, I, president Trump last night was trying to set the stage for his reelection campaign. I think he, he did about as good of a presentation of, of that as, as, as you're going to get. Um, it, it's a good start for, for, for him to the, to the campaign, but a lot is yet to come.
0: So if you're the Democrats, how are you feeling today?
2: Confused by Iowa. I think we're all con- confused. Yeah. by Iowa. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing. Um, and really, you know, I kind of joke about that, but, but um, in all seriousness, uh, usually one thing Iowa does is provide a little more clarity uh, depending on uh, who does well and who underperforms. You get some people dropping out, you narrow the field. We, you know, I don't think you're going to see at least that immediate reaction. Certainly if if you're someone who didn't do as well in, in Iowa, if you're Andrew Yang or someone like that, why drop out before New Hampshire? There's really no incentive, incentive because we don't know officially what happened in Iowa. Uh, we have 71% of the results out, um, oddly enough. So uh, I think Democrats, um, you know, they, uh, they ought to be concerned uh, that the field is, is, although we've had some narrowing, it's still a wide field. Um, there's not a lot of clarity about what's going to happen in terms of the nomination process. And President Trump was demonstrating some ability to stick to the script. Hmm. Last night, and, and highlighting some things, whether it's the economy or other other things that were uh, that are going to be working in his favor. So, you know, I think Democrats, um, as as alarmed as they may be by the Trump presidency, uh, they need to take his reelection campaign very seriously. And it was
0: fascinating that he didn't he didn't go anywhere near the Iowa issue or uh, right. or impeachment for that matter. When, right. when do we know when all the results will come in from Iowa? And and just <laughs> really quickly tell the story of what happened there to those that maybe oh, uh,
2: not aware. Oh. I don't know if I... You got a half hour? Um, you know. <laughs> so
0: basically no results came in due to what they say is a computer or technology glitch.
2: That's right. They're using this new app, which was going to report three different sets of results. In, in the past, it's just been... Uh, all that all the results that would come out is the number of delegates won uh, per precinct by a given candidate. And the uh, precinct captains would call up the state party headquarters. There was one line that they could call, and they just say, okay, here are our numbers, and that was it. Um, this time around, they were going to report for all kinds of reasons that get into the complexity of the caucus process. so I won't get too much into that, Uh, but they were supposed to report uh, the preference of of the voters when they walked into the caucus site. Um, Their second set of preferences, once they were allowed to uh, realign with another candidate, if their candidate had failed to achieve a certain threshold of support where they could qualify for delegates. So there are two kind of preference numbers. And then you had the third one, which was the delegate count. Uh, So the Iowa Democratic Party set up an app that could be used to report this. They failed to pilot this thing. They had been warned. Uh, Senator Ron Wyden, there were others I've seen uh, at state level who were uh, warning that, that this needed to be uh, uh, vetted some more before it was go time. Uh, they didn't do that, and sure enough, we had these reporting problems. I'm still not clear on why they can't just you know, call in the numbers or email it or, or something like that. I, I haven't heard a good explanation, but I may have missed that. Um, but we still don't have 100%. We finally got 62% reported at about 5 p.m., uh, Eastern Time last uh, last night, uh, a little later in the night, we got up to 71%, hmm. uh, but we're still waiting on, looks like, 515 precincts, uh, which is uh, uh, 29% are yet to report. So uh, right now, Pete Buttigieg is in the lead. He has 27%. Uh, Bernie Sanders has 25%. They're tied in delegates. Hmm. Um, you have Elizabeth Warren uh, in third place and Joe Biden in fourth, uh, but... What are the outstanding precincts? I mean, let's say they're all in college towns, for instance. Right. Then I bet Bernie Sanders is really going to move up and and, and win it. Uh, what if they're for more more moderate areas? Then we might see uh, Buttigieg uh, pulling up more. Uh, for instance, Des Moines, by the way, hasn't re- reported, so that could really uh, change things. So it's that's where the results stand now, but but things could change. What
0: about the Biden issue? Surprised he's so far down?
2: Yeah. Now he hadn't been polling uh, at the top. Uh, far as it being buddha judge sanders and, and warren that wasn't a big surprise nevertheless i mean that that's often part of the story in iowa or some of these early states of someone doing better than expected or worse than expected uh biden you know fourth place 15 percent. that's competitive but that's not real impressive for mm. uh someone who uh looked uh, at least to be the national favorite uh for for democrats now in biden's defense he looks very strong in south carolina um, uh, he's particularly popular with African-American voters, and, and, and that's a very large percentage of, of the electorate, uh, Democratic electorate in, in South Carolina. Um, he has national name recognition that should uh, uh, serve him well in, in, on Super Tuesday uh, in early March. So, uh, and, and also working in his favor is that because we don't have clear results from Iowa, if we, if we did, let's say if these results hold up and, and they had come through on Monday night, Monday night, we would have been talking not just about how well Pete Buttigieg did, but how relatively poorly Joe Biden did. Well, we're not having that conversation, or at least it's a murky one because Mm. we don't have official results. And Biden could still climb up, although I think that's doubtful. Um, So, you know, Biden, it's not an impressive performance. It's not good news for him. But it's, uh, it could have been a lot worse, and he still has some things uh, working in his favor. I think he's still very much a viable candidate.
0: Christopher Devine has been with us, assistant professor at University of Dayton, talking about the State of the Union and the Iowa caucus. Christopher, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
2: My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott
0: Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we reported yesterday, the Federal Court of Appeal cleared a hurdle for, and it looks like the last one, although there could be one more appeal from what I understand, for the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline. What does that mean for Alberta? Uh, What does that mean for business moving forward? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Much appreciated.
3: You know, Scott, no matter how difficult your life is, at least nobody stands behind you and rips up your program at the end of the day.
0: (laughs) I don't know if that's accurate, Marvin.
3: Well, I, since I, don't you, think, since, I have not seen them doing
0: it Since you brought up the State of the Union speech I'm always willing to talk about this stuff uh, You know, if she had Let that go and just it had been The Trump snub with a handshake Because what happened is, State of the Union speech Trump comes down, goes to uh, Nancy Pelosi, goes to shake his hand When he hands her the speech she, He gives her the snub, so then at the end It's a rip and tear. Is this even Stephen Or is she getting more traction out of this than he is?
3: Well, the whole the whole event seemed to me to be quite bizarre. Here he is standing in a chamber that just a month earlier the members had voted to impeach him. Uh, he's now giving a speech the night before the Senate's going to vote on impeaching him. And although I think they're not going to vote to impeach him, I mean, he's standing in front of these people. It, it's really weird. You point out that traditionally, at the start of the speech, he gives a copy to the vice president who sits beside the Speaker of the House, and they can follow the speech along. Uh, To his credit, Donald Trump did not diverge from that speech at all. He truly delivered it the way the teleprompter told him to deliver it. That's amazing for Donald Trump. It was one
0: of his better speeches, I thought.
3: In that sense, absolutely. Uh, But it was a highly partisan speech, and then to me watching it, I actually thought I was watching a game show because at one point he gave out a scholarship, then he reunited a family, uh, and then he gave a Medal of Freedom to someone dying of cancer. I was expecting him at one point to yell out, everybody's going to get a car, everyone's going to take home a car, kind of like Oprah Winfrey. It was an odd speech. And then, obviously, Nancy Pelosi puts the icing on the cake by the end of it disgusted as she was by the speech and, and many of the things that she, he said, he ripped it up. I, I probably would not have done that. I would have folded it up and then uh, found the nearest recycling container and mm-hmm. put it in there. Uh,
0: how do you think Americans are going to view this? Because obviously these two saw. I mean, it's just more divisiveness, Marvin.
3: Absolutely. And, and so the vote today, uh, as we are talking right now, senators in their chamber are going on the record before they vote to tell everybody how they're going to vote because they want their their reasons, their rationale to be part of recorded history. Uh, and then around 4 o'clock today, plus or minus, it's like the Iowa caucuses, maybe it'll be midnight. I'm not just sure when they're actually <laughs> going to have the vote, but uh, they'll all then vote to uh, acquit him. And by the time we get to the election in the fall, this is all going to be forgotten other than as a tone issue. As you point out, divisiveness. As we head to the elections in the fall, that's the theme. But Mm. any one specific event, any one specific thing, it just adds to the total mood of divisiveness.
0: It was quite a show. All right. Uh, Yesterday, speaking of shows, uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline clears another hurdle. Is this it? Or do you you think they'll send the appeal or will try an appeal? I was talking to somebody from out west yesterday, and they said, uh, considering that uh, the court made... Um, the plaintiffs pay for their uh, court costs. That they may not jump to a to, to the next level and take this to the Supreme Court. Your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah. So. First, if you don't mind, just because I never know what listeners uh, know in advance of all of this, this Trans Mountain Pipeline has been going on for years and years and years. And roughly uh, a year and a half ago, there was a court case. Of opponents to the pipeline went to the court and said, look, the government of the day, this would be the liberal government, the federal government, did not do their homework properly, and therefore this thing should be stopped and they should be made to do their homework properly. And at that point, the court found the government had not done their homework correctly. So Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals hired a fellow named Frank Akabuchi, a retired Supreme Court justice, and they said, okay, do the consultations one more time, but get them right. So he did those, and then that all came to an end in the fall. Based on these consultations, the liberals approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline with some additional amendments to the approval based on what uh, the judge Akabuchi found. And instantly, of course, there was an appeal. No, he still didn't do it right. He's still doing it right. Uh, so a lower court actually threw out almost half of the appeal, uh, saying that this is ground that we've already covered. This isn't anything new. You can't, you can't bring this. This has already been decided. But the question remained, did he properly consult with the indigenous groups? And what we got yesterday was a ruling from the Federal Court of Appeals that said, yes, yes, the person did do it correctly. You were consulted. You were heard. Uh, and, and by the way, I find this is a standard. Many people think, I'm not heard because he didn't do what I told him to yeah, do, yeah. but that's that's not the standard. The standard is, are you heard? Were your concerns recognized, and were there you know, amendments made accordingly? And that's what they came to the conclusion. And as you pointed out, the federal court also said, because we find no grounds that this this appeal has any validity, we're making you pay the court costs. Now, there is one last potential hurdle, and that is they could appeal this decision to the supreme court of canada supreme court of canada has a couple of options one they could choose not to hear the appeal and say i I don't think there's any merit to this so no your appeal is denied just point blank or they could hear the appeal the the arguments would be made at the supreme court level and they would decide once and for all if this pipeline had met that standard given the court costs you might think they wouldn't appeal but let's remember that there are people on both far left and far right, uh, who, who have very strong opinions, yeah. and, and money normally is not the problem here. Somehow hmm. money can be found. So they have 60 days to appeal. I suspect there will be appeal filed, but I also would not be surprised if within a month or two the Supreme Court says, we don't want to hear this. We, we, we agree with the lower court. This thing was, has no merit at all.
0: What does this mean for Alberta? What does it mean for future pipelines or projects?
3: Well, uh, let's deal with the second one first, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, many people have said, how can we ever build a pipeline if all this can do is get tied up in the courts over and over and over again? So this uh, this series of court cases is actually helping define a standard for consultation. Now, just to give you a sense of how difficult this was, uh, on the Transbound Pipeline, um, Mr. Ayakabuchi consulted with, now listen closely, 129 different indigenous groups it it isn't that he had to talk to two or five or 10 or 20 129 so this consultation of of retired judge akabuchi now sets the standard and assuming it's upheld then for any future pipeline development this is the level of consultation you have to do but then that we now understand both sides understand if you do this then the pipeline can be built. It seems like this somehow was not set beforehand. Now, for Alberta, this this is finally the news that they've been waiting for. Yeah. It's, it's going to make it a little harder, although not impossible, to beat up on Justin Trudeau because, of course, the feeling had been that Ottawa hates us, Ottawa hates us, Ottawa hates us. But if this can actually clear that last hurdle... And again, listen carefully, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, not only can it be built, but it can be operating by the year 2022, that's two years from now. That's tremendous news for them, and the capacity going from 300,000 barrels a day to 890,000 barrels a day. Oil would flow through this pipeline, and what's important for Alberta, even though the price of oil today has fallen below $50 a barrel, that's not good news, but they even get less money in Alberta because the, the oil has to be transported by train cars, one of the most expensive ways to deliver oil to the coast, so they might get you know, $25 a barrel or $30 a barrel. As soon as this pipeline opens, even if oil prices are low, they're going to get more money for their resources. This is all great news for Alberta that's been desperate for great news for the better part of three years.
0: Will we see an uptick in Alberta's uh, life in Alberta almost immediately from this?
3: Um, So, you know, Scott, there's the great story about recessions. You know, do recessions happen because of external factors or do we wish them into existence? Right now, there's been so much... Uh, The word I would use is malaise, but just negative feelings in Alberta. You know, no one seems to be positive. No one's happy. There's no reason to wake up in the morning and say, this is going to be a great day. Oh, it's more of the same. It's evil. It's awful. This is could very well look back in history as a turning point to get positivity back into that economy. And the minute you've got people thinking positively about an economy guess what? The economy starts to grow again. So I think this is great news. I don't like to overstate these things, but I think this is great news for Alberta now, we may still have to wait those, those next two months to see if the appeal is filed and then whatever happens to that appeal. But for, for an area that has been been pretty beaten up over the last three years, this could begin the, the turning point, much like Hamilton's gone through a turning point, a turning point for their economy with good news down the road.
0: Uh, last question. I was watching uh, a news program last night. Thomas Mulcair was on and brought the point up that, you know, uh, Alberta or sorry, um, British Columbia, uh, it's over for them. They don't get to veto this in any way, yet if this is Quebec and it's the Energy East pipeline and they say, no go, no go. he And he was very, very critical of the fact that Quebec can do that, but B.C. couldn't.
3: Yeah, and I think that's also a fair statement. and And what this also clears up in the courts is that the provinces just don't have that veto power. Um uh, British Columbia remember we talked I think it was a week or so ago, British Columbia gave up their fight to say that they had a veto power not over the pipeline but what could be delivered through the pipeline. So in other words, if the province wanted to build or excuse me, if the federal government wanted to build a pipeline transporting water to the West Coast for whatever reason, oh well as the province of British Columbia, we're fine with that. It's just that we don't want this dill bit or this diluted bitumen type oil going through. We should have that right. And the and the the courts have actually said no. You do not have that right. So I I think it will be interesting once we get this thing going, if there's now talk about an Energy East pipeline or retrofitting some of the Trans-Canada pipelines that run through the province of of Quebec, how much power they're going to have. I think they're reading these things very closely as well.
0: Interesting. Marvin Ryder's been with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Is there anything worse than being sick than being sick on a cruise ship? Can you imagine what that must be like with the thousands uh, that are on ships in relatively uh, close quarters and such? Man, it, it must be so difficult to try to try to quarantine people other than basically saying everybody in the cabin. Uh, 251 Canadians stuck on board a quarantine cruise ship in Japan. To find out more about all of this, Albert Tella is with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News, and with us now. Albert, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Absolutely. All right, what can you tell us about this ship and the condition of uh, those on board, especially the Canadians?
4: Yeah, well, officials pegged the number of Canadians on that ship at 251. That's after 10 people on it uh, tested positive for the new coronavirus. Uh, The cruise line is a diamond princess, uh, and uh, the ship is now quarantined just off the coast of uh, Yokohama, Japan. Um, It's carrying just over 3,700 people, including guests and crew. Uh, Nine passengers and one crew member on the ship tested positive for the virus. And the cruise line says, though, that none of those 10 people is Canadian.
0: And what about the itinerary? Where was this ship? Where, what was, where did it go? Where did it come from? Do we know?
4: Yeah, well, um, uh, from, from my information, I know it, it, it did make a stop in Hong Kong. And, and in fact, uh, that's where one, um, uh, one man got off who, who in fact, tested positive uh, for, for the virus. So he's one of those 10 people. And uh, because of that, that's why they uh, were uh, quarantined off the, the coast of Japan.
0: Uh, here's a quick clip of what the prime minister had to say about these passengers being stranded on the ship. We are in, uh, engaged with the uh, Japanese government in terms of uh, how we can provide support for the Canadians. We're trying to get more information about the situation right now, but we're very much uh, uh, engaged. And again, we want to reassure the families both on the, on the cruise ship that we are uh, alert and engaged in their issue uh, and, uh, and trying to work with families at home to reassure them as well. What? Other than uh, engaging and reassuring, what can the government do here?
4: Yeah, well, um, as you heard there, the prime minister said uh, his government is working with uh, their counterparts in Japan to assist Canadians on board, um, and we haven't heard much else beyond that. But I mean, they're they're communicating and. Uh and I mean, and the people on that ship—they're facing a, a 14-day quarantine in their cabins. So I mean, it's kind of wow. waiting for that to pass, I guess. Right? But, um, but of course, Canadian officials uh, will be in touch with their counterparts there, and presumably with uh, those Canadians as well. S-
0: so, uh, d- does this uh, ship basically stay docked for 14 days, and then people who are, uh, I guess, uh, not showing signs of infection get to move on?
4: Yeah. Well, that—that's—that's a. That's, uh my, that's my understanding. That, so, yeah, they'll be observed for 14 days. We, we saw some new video uh, a few hours ago that showed them taking some people off the ship. Um, so we're not sure. Uh, if, if, it looks like they might be the people who are, who are sick, perhaps, but it's, it's a little bit uh, hard to tell. But, but, um, but, it, but it seems so anyone needing treatment, perhaps, will be dealt with. But, but, but the rest of the people will, will face that quarantine period.
0: Uh, Any idea if being confined on a cruise ship is good or bad for this? I mean, you know, because of the close quarters and such of being on a cruise ship, I understand there's like 2,666 guests and over 1,000 crew, a lot of people on, these are monstrous ships, but still, it must be very difficult with close confinement to try to keep these people all quarantined.
4: Yeah, well, I mean... I wonder uh, how you feed them. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess I could probably, uh, you know, uh, Transport some some food and such onto the ship, but but yeah, I mean, in some ways, I mean, being confined to a to you know a a luxury cruise ship doesn't sound too bad, but but then of course over a fourteen day period, I'm sure that gets that gets old, and uh, and yeah, it it is uh, you know, I mean, I guess you know they they say cabin fever. I mean, this would be quite literally cabin fever that they (laughs) that they may be facing uh, psychologically anyway, right? So I mean, it is it is a long period of time and. But, you know, it's just uh, something, given the precautions that they're taking around the world, that these people have to deal with.
0: Uh, And obviously uh, collateral damage. I think we'd heard from one uh, in Italy uh, last week that was similar to this. So I'm guessing this is affecting all forms of travel.
4: Yes, all forms of travel and other cruise ships, too. I mean, we saw some other passengers and other cruise ships kind of, Talking about similar experiences, I mean, one that we've heard about, uh, um, one other cruise ship we've heard about as well is in Hong Kong, also facing quarantine. And an official in Hong Kong says that uh, that ship, uh, which is World Dream, uh, it's a World Dream cruise ship that has 3,600 people on board. Uh, it was it was turned away from a Taiwanese port after three passengers on an earlier voyage were later diagnosed with the new coronavirus. Mm and those people will be quarantined until they're checked for the virus. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a story that's repeated um, across cruise ships and across the other modes of um, transportation as well.
0: Albert Dillatela has been with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Albert, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
4: My pleasure. Thanks.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've been talking about the coronavirus and uh, and its spread and such, still waiting for Canadians to be returned home. We understand their flight that was supposed to go up Thursday morning has now be- been delayed to later uh, Thursday afternoon into Thursday evening. Uh, so we'll keep abreast of that as well. And uh, hopefully, it's interesting that China can build a 1,000-bed hospital faster than we can get a plane load of Canadians out of China. Another uh, aspect of this, and we were, we were talking earlier about uh, 251 Canadians that were uh, quarantined aboard a cruise ship. Think about that. As, as, one, as, one, as one listener put it, uh, that's the time you wish you spent the extra $1,000 for the suite. Because if you've been, ever been on a cruise ship, obviously the cabins are kind of small, unless you get one of the big ones. And he pointed out, I don't know what the situation is, but when there's a lockdown, I guess there's no booze served. Oh my goodness, 14 days aboard a cruise ship and no liquor? How are you going to survive that, let alone the coronavirus? Uh, Anyway, so there's lots of, all kinds of collateral damage that happens from something like this. Um, And again, the chaos that it creates uh, all over the world. Something that I never thought about until I saw this headline was the Tokyo Olympics. Tokyo Olympics coming up in six months. And now the CEO is concerned about the coronavirus uh, with the games less than six months away. And any extra precautions, you think you're hosting the Olympics, man, security, uh, big issue, politics, athletes, doping, whatever. Now it's coronavirus. Just another thing to, I guess, throw onto the plate. That being said, the Olympic uh, IOC says, the International Olympic Committee says uh, they're going and and no plans uh, at this point to cancel anything. No need for that. However, it does have officials in Tokyo concerned. Let's bring in Michael Narain, Assistant Professor, Sports Management, Brock University and is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, No problem. Thanks for having me, Scott. You know, when you think of this sort of thing and the collateral damage it causes, I I never even thought of the Tokyo Olympics being several months out. How could this possibly affect the games moving forward?
5: Yeah, so, well, I, I mean, to, to your earlier point about the CEO, uh, Toshiro Mudo, coming out and, and uh, saying, you know, there, there's a slight concern on their part. I mean, he, it would be problematic if he didn't, right? Like, I mean, yeah. imagine if you were acting like Leslie Nielsen in The Naked Gun, saying, now nah, there's nothing to see here. Yeah. This, this yeah. Show, show must go I, on. I never right?
0: thought of that. <laughs> Gee, why? Yeah, we should maybe get some more damn claws. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, ab- it's only prudent that they're mentioning
5: this. Right, right. So... And it I mean, that's so that's what we would expect of our uh, not just elected officials, but certainly the officials who are organizing major uh, international scope type events like this. Um, the one thing that we do need to remember, though, is that there are procedures and and programs in place, I mean, certainly a massive uh, epidemic, which the coronavirus has essentially come to, uh, is is going to be of concern to the group. Um, Health policy countermeasures, uh, those are all types of things that are involved in not only bidding, but organizing a major multi-sport event, um, particularly because when you think about the Athletes Village and you think about media relations, those are tight quarters where human Mm. human contact happens quite uh, uh, frequently. Um, but that being said, if you, th- if you think only four years ago, we had this exact same conversation in Rio about the Zika virus and yep. how yep. You know, uh, the Summer Olympic Games are not going to go on because of these mosquitoes and the mosquito-borne uh, virus, obviously – Um, What we have going for us is that the coronavirus will not hopefully be as widespread during the summer months. You know, Mm. these types of obviously I'm not a health policy expert, but what we do know from a uh, sport management perspective is that when it comes to uh, organizing games and, and putting things on the summertime tends to be better when it comes to minimizing the risk to our athletes, to our fans and certainly the other stakeholders involved.
2: Will this
0: change preparation? I mean, I guess, you know, we're still under six months. Months away, so there is quite a bit of time between now and then. If things, um, if things stay the same, and, and you know, let's not assume they're going to get worse. But if things stay the same and they eventually get this stabilized, how does this change preparation leading up to the Olympics?
5: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's obviously the biggest concern right now. You know, outside of China. Japan has the highest confirmed case uh, at, at tw- uh, number of cases excuse me at twenty if i 'm not mistaken um, and so that is obviously one of the reasons why the Japanese officials are, are slightly concerned um, but you know if if this thing does stabilize obvi- you know the games will continue if things start to get out of proportion that and that's the interesting case here what 's still likely to happen is the show's going to go on the IOC is very yeah. um, stern and stubborn when it comes to these particular things. There's only, Scott, there's only been one Olympic Games in our history, in our lifetime, uh, that have been moved, and that was the 1976 Winter Games. Mm. Um, just small side anecdote, I guess, trivia question for the, the listeners out there. Uh, so it was actually awarded to Denver, Colorado, um, but because of political you know, naysay, it ended up going back to Innsbruck, Austria. Um, so there's only been one occasion in our lifetime that the modern Olympic movement has switched its game. So the, the IOC is very firm in its resolve, and, and it's firm in its w- a willingness to, you know, once it decides on a place, not switching course. Um, What we're going to likely see are the potential for more precautions for fans. So if there's any listeners out there who are traveling to the games in Japan, whether it's the Olympics or Paralympic Games, maybe there's more tight, stringent security measures. You're going to see a lot more hand sanitizer stations in Mm. and around uh, the Olympic Village and the Olympic venues. You're going to see a lot more masks being worn, um, tighter security measures. But again, those are some of the things that we'd see anyways if there was a heightened security level due to terrorist uh, concerns or anything like that like that, but there, you're going to see a lot more medical security tents being propped up, and again, those are the types of things that we would want to see uh, you know, during a health crisis like this.
0: What if the games were being held this weekend? What if they started this weekend? What, what what would be the concern? How would this change what we see, how the games move forward?
5: Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and, and certainly the, what I just mentioned in that response would be expedited as far as you know who can come in, uh, where certain officials and accredited athletes are able to get into. You would see a lot tighter security. Um, you know, the Japanese um, are fairly good at uh, regulation and abiding by the rules and not, you know, getting bent out of shape over uh, additional concerns. So, uh, you know, if there were some greater uh, security or greater um, health impositions placed upon, um, you know, fans and locals in Japan, in Tokyo specifically, and, and Sapporo to an extent, you um, you know, that wouldn't be the end of the world, but certainly for fans coming in outside of Japan, that would certainly be something that they would be wary of and and, and not overly thrilled about is the a bi- maybe potentially not even getting to see uh, the venues and the disciplines that they mm. uh, had tickets for, uh, maybe minimizing some of the spectatorship of some of the events. Um, and that would be slightly problematic. However, the Olympic Games are very much predicated on a global broadcast, on social media and specifically on television. So, you know, not having fans and spectators attend mm. the physical events wouldn't be the end of the world for the IOC because it makes its dollars from television.
0: That was my next question. What about costs if all of a sudden these venues are empty?
5: If the venues are empty, it's not the end of the world like I said because you, the IOC would still make sure that all of the events would be televised yeah. and shown internationally. And so, yeah, you know, worst absolute worst-case scenario, this thing breaks out like crazy, um absolute shenanigans, that would still likely be the case where the athletes would still go, um the media would still go, but it would be a very subdued games. Um, but certainly something that people would be able to to watch it on their television. television.
0: What about the athletes themselves, or even athletes from certain hotspot countries like uh, China or close to them? I mean, would they be scrutinized even more so?
5: Yeah, definitely, and and, and that's certainly, uh, unfortunately, going to be the case where um, the Olympic Village is going to be very cognizant of uh, Olympic Village security and personnel, excuse me, are going to be very cognizant of who is getting access to the village. The the Olympic Village, uh, as we know, is an incredibly tight space. Uh, You know, I've been to many Olympic Villages in the past, Uh, And the the, uh, officials, the media, the food, um, all those types of uh, elements are very much in close quarters and it'd be very easy to spread even the common cold, let alone uh, a major virus like the coronavirus. And so you're going to see a lot tighter security, not just in terms of x-ray for, you know, weapons and things of that nature, but as far as, you know, maybe even going so far as to have the um, detectors of fever and high temperatures, and being able to quarantine athletes and other officials in the moment before they enter into the village where, again, you're, you're going into a building where there's thousands of people, you know, even rooms where, you know, up to four to six people are sleeping in a sort of apartment style complex, yeah. mm-hmm. um, or, or suite, if you want to call it that, it can get uh, very dangerous very quickly. So you're going to see a lot more stringency, um, a lot more quarantine, a lot of those sort of temporary medical tents where they um, pull out some of those potentially infected people before they start spreading.
0: Um, will we see athletes competing with masks?
5: Uh, <laughs> I don't believe Is so. Is that too I, far-fetched? I think that might be a little bit uh, beyond the scope of, of possibility. You know, You know, athletes do... Um, to, to, to be quite honest with you, Scott, some, some athletes are very germaphobic. Like they, they understand that, yes, I will be eating in a large dining hall with thousands of other yeah. athletes from other countries. Um, they know that to use hand, hand sanitizer, excuse me, they know to constantly keep washing their hands and wear gloves. And um, you might see more masks in and around the venues, and you might see more masks in and around the Olympic Village itself, but I don't think you'll see the athletes compete with those types of things, Um, so that might be a little bit too far-fetched, but it's not unreasonable to assume that there's going to be more tighter um, anticipation and restrictions that athletes will impose on themselves about where they go, who they touch, um, and things like that.
0: Uh what about ticket sales any worry any any word at this point whether uh, it has affected ticket sales or travel reservations to there
5: um yeah, so at this point in time, most of the ticket sales had already gone through, so the coronavirus is coming in at I, to be, I mean, if you want to look at the bright side of things, yeah. it's coming in at an opportune time. It's right. not happening while well. tickets were still, you know, trying to be sold. But the vast majority of disciplines and ticket blocks have been sold off. There are still some blocks for certain events that are available at a price, um, but I don't really see a lot of negativity out in the marketplace related to ticket sales for the Tokyo Games. Um, this may have an impact on the Paralympic Games and the amount of um, physical spectators that the Paralympics may, may um, unfortunately get um, you know, by the time that they have their, their games. I, I think as far as the hospitality industry in Japan, Um, there might be some blowback uh, because of the coronavirus. Um, And generally speaking, we're seeing that across the board, across industries. Um, You know, sport requires travel, but certainly just general tourism requires travel. And, uh, you know, with all the the notices that are going out, you know, telling people to stay home, don't travel internationally, and certainly not to travel to the, uh, you know, Eastern Asia Pacific region, um, that there might be some blowback um, for people who may not have gotten tickets but were, still had planned to go to Japan and support their team and, and enjoy Japanese culture while, while the games were on um <sighs>
0: Is this, uh, is this uh, affecting training? Like, for example, if you are an athlete in an area that has been impacted by this or a, an athlete from China, I wonder how this is affecting your preparation for the Games.
5: Yeah, definitely. We, we have seen that a lot of events that were scheduled to be hosted in China have since been moved. Uh, the World Indoor Track and Field Championships, as an example, were due to be held in Nanjing uh, in March. Uh, Nanjing being a former Olympic city itself, holding, uh, hosting the Youth Olympic Games. Um, and, and, you know, so uh, that, that's an ex- a good example. We, we see that China's delayed its um, soccer league, its soccer season. Uh, the International Field Hockey Federation has postponed some games in the country. Um, and Formula One is also keeping a close monitoring oh eye on... Um, You know the situation and whether or not they can host the Chinese Grand Prix in Shanghai, which is due to be uh, there in a couple months' time. So we are starting to see the impact of the coronavirus in sport uh, because China is a major player in the sport industry. Mm. Um, You know many of the listeners may not be in tune to that because obviously we're very hockey-centric in this country, and obviously you know with with our Raptors doing so well, you know we kind of get stuck into the local affairs, but on an international scope, an international landscape, China is a major player. They host multiple events every year. um, And and naturally, uh, having over a billion people will help with that. It's about scale. But because of the coronavirus and these issues that have come to light, uh, not a lot of events are going to be hosted in that region in the next couple months. And so it's not um, unsurprising to see that the Japanese are slightly concerned., um, and it's certainly not surprising to see that the Chinese are uh, not having a lot of their, uh, sporting events take place at this early part of the year.
0: Mm. You know, you think of when we're hearing all kinds of collateral damage, whether it's cruise ships, travel, this, that, or the other. I mean, you don't even think about sport, but look at the impact that you've just talked about, uh, how much this is going to impact just the sporting world. And again, not to diminish any of those that are sick or have have uh, died to this illness, but it just shows you uh, the collateral damage of this sort of thing.
5: Oh, definitely. And and, and you know what, like, if you th- if you think even further, um, you know, in sport, but also just generally in business, uh, there are a lot of knock-on effects. I mean, this is a time of prosperity for the Chinese people. You know, just coming off of their the New Year and the Year of the Rat, obviously, and mm-hmm. that was supposed to spur a lot of tourism. To places like Japan, like Australia, like India, where Chinese tourists like to go and celebrate, uh, Singapore, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where, where Chinese tourists like to go and celebrate and, and vacation. Um, and, you know, d- d- the same way that we would ring in the New Year on December 31st yeah. and go to various different places is the same way that the Chinese would do that for their uh, Lunar New Year. So um, there are a lot of knock-on effects, as you mentioned, and, and particularly sport is, is certainly one of those... Um, unintended consequences of of major health crises because travel is so important to international sport when you're flying from around the world to a particular location um and when we know that this human-to-human contact of the coronavirus uh spreading is is going to be you know one of those uh, havens for the spread could be airports, could be airplanes, could be going to regions where there is a lot of confirmed cases. And so you know looking forward, obviously we're optimistic and the IOC is certainly uh, you know cockeyed optimist about the games going on, and they're likely to go on in july without um, w- without any interruption. however, the interim period, where there's a lot of sporting events that could happen in China, that could happen in Russia, that could happen in Japan, mm. those are and certainly Australia as well, those are things we need to keep our eyes on.
0: Michael Noreen has been with us, assistant professor, sports management at Brock University. Tokyo Olympics officials concerned uh, about the Games and how they may be affected by the coronavirus. Michael, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
5: Yeah, thanks, Scott. Anytime.